Good morning and welcome, Trinity Bible Church, as well as friends and family who may be visiting. Uh, I do have a quick announcement this morning. Well, we'll see how quick it is. And so I do have an announcement this morning. Uh, the way that, and this is probably good for the congregation to be reminded of, as well as any visitors, uh, basically a little information about how the government of the church actually works at uh, Trinity Bible Church. We are what is known as a representative Presbyterium, and that's a, a phrase I would hope all of you would memorize and enjoy for the rest of your life. What that means is Presbyterium comes from the, the Greek word where you get elders in the New Testament, meaning that the representative aspect is that the elders or the leaders of the church are actually chosen from amongst the congregation by the congregation, put forward to lead the congregation, and the congregation is agreeing to be under the authority of those leaders. So throughout our history of a church, we've had several elders, and some have rolled off and on. But we also have in our bylaws through that that each elder serves for three years and then can roll off if they like or stay on and then serve another three years to where they have to have a mandatory year off before they come back on. And so Stuart Holland and myself have just ended our year off because we served the six consecutive years. Now, all of this is kind of in some, some terms that I'm going to say that, just so you're aware of, has to do with who is at session. And what that means, a session is the elders who are voting or the, on the council of elders who have a vote based on things that come up in terms of the needs of the church and whatnot. So when you roll off, you don't cease being an elder at the church. You haven't been disqualified or anything like that. And you certainly aren't not you know participating in the life of the church anymore you're simply not at the table and you don't have to go to the monthly meetings well if we roll back on now we have to go back to those and so uh, the reality is that that's what it means to be part of the session you're at the table you have a vote otherwise you're still an elder and recognized by and as an elder amongst the congregation but you're simply not at the table in that way so now, Stuart and I, the elders who are at the table, which would be Mike Garrett, who is uh, the moderator of the session, and then we have Fred Warren and Bo Andrews and Philip Vance. And so those are the four current elders who are, are members of the session. And so Stuart and I have agreed that we will roll back on if they desire us to, and they, they do, but we do have to do a reaffirmation meaning. So all of that long-winded stuff, and by the way, don't get me started on church governance. It's literally my favorite thing. <laughs> but, why are you shaking your head? And so, <laughs> but to say all of that is to just say, we're giving the congregation two weeks in order that you may approach any of the elders who I've mentioned who are currently a part of the session, with any concerns you would have about either myself or Stuart Holland serving back on the session or the Council of Elders in that sense. So you have two weeks, and if no objections are brought forward, then we would take that as an affirmation of Stuart and I rolling back onto the session again. So if you want to reach out or have any questions for any of the elders sitting at in session right now, you would have to be, and if you could raise your hand in case members or or visitors don't know who you are, Fred, 
who's right there. And then we also have Philip, who is not here, but usually sits back there and is, has also um, a bit of height on everyone else, so you would, you would notice who he is. And then Bo, everyone knows who Bo is, and so he'll be back uh, this afternoon. He went to go see his new uh, grandson. And then um, also, where is he? Mike, in the back. So direct you to them. We'll give two weeks for that. Uh, and then uh, as that time goes by, if Stuart and I are reaffirmed, we will announce it on that Sunday morning. So <clears throat> now, <coughs> I, I knew that wouldn't be short. Now we are continuing in our, in our, our reading and our, our, our study, if you will, in, in the gospel according to Matthew. We will be finishing chapter 21 today. 21 is, is quite unique, if you've noticed, as, as it begins with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, uh, what's typically known or titled as the triumphant entry, which I challenged us to think of it more of a, a lamentful entry. And what you'll see in, from the moment of the triumphal entry to them concluding that Jesus was a prophet, to the children still singing praises and the leaders asking Jesus to rebuke the children, to the turning over of the tables, to the questioning of his authority, and then what will be three continuous parables, not to mention the withering of the fig tree, all of this, all of this that's happening is a pronouncement by Messiah of judgment on unbelieving Israel. And and this is culminating in these parables, both which Bo did last week and the one I'm covering, and then continues even into 22 about the wedding feast. This is not a a subject that perhaps is easy for for people to hear, particularly in light of, of modern in current circumstances with people of, 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 that live in the, the nation of Israel or ethnic Jews and things that happen like that. But when you pronounce, and so I, I lay this out at the beginning, most of this is going to be about pronouncing judgment against unbelieving Israel, unbelieving Jews. And that is not anti-Semitic. That is a case of understanding the reality of how this whole thing is set up. And, and the reality that it's not unique to Israel as the gospel is presented to them, although their rejection is the basis of the gospel going to the nations, to the Gentiles. And Paul's discourse in Romans, particularly 9 through 11, and particularly on 11, is dealing specifically with that. To do not despise their unbelief because of their unbelief, The gospel was given to the Gentiles, and then when the full number of the Gentiles come in, the gospel will return, and then there will be a large awakening or conversion of ethnic Jews to Christ. Now, this is all to say, but this moment in history here is one of the most important aspects of understanding the beauty of God's plan in the midst of a sinful people. The amazing reality of God's grace. When you look at Israel's unbelief as God himself walks among them 
Don't be amazed at their unbelief. Be amazed at yours. Don't be confused with the reality of what we see here is, oh, this unbelieving nation. Like, no, oh, unbelieving nations. We now sit 2,000 years after these events, 2,000 years after the events of the cross, and are you shocked still to this day at the unbelief of the nations? And yet God doesn't call us to be shocked. God calls us to be hopeful. Hope in the midst of what seems the ultimate crime in which it is. But through that ultimate crime of the creator of the universe coming in humiliation to his destined point of the cross to take the curse of God for his people. And if you are here and you are a believer in Christ, that's you, that's me. And then the hope of the nations isn't the nations or the governors or the rulers or the kings or the queens. The hope of the nations is remained the same. Christ alone. And I don't generally have long introductions like this before I read and pray, but I fear deeply for the state of the church in the West. And it's not because of cultural Marxism. It's because of our belief, it seems, that somehow one political leader or another is going to save us. That is other biblical. That is antithesis to the gospel. The gospel calls us not to look to any leader for hope, but to Christ alone. The church was birthed in the middle of empire. And you will have a hard time through the whole New Testament trying to find any of the authors ranting and raving about their local governing leaders even when they're killing them. Why? Because they weren't looking at this world for hope. They were looking for the return of the king. And so I I encourage us as we read this passage today, not to be stuck in the here and now, not to be stuck in the sensate of, of government and this and that, but rather the point of this. Christ was here in person, working miracles, raising the dead, fulfilling all prophecies, saying he is the hope of Israel. He is the seed of Abraham. And he's calling his people to be a part of his kingdom. And they reject him. That should be the clarion call of all believers. This is the state of man in his natural state. He can have the patriarchs. He can have the scriptures. He can have the history and the events and all of these things and be waiting for Messiah. And Messiah can show up in humiliation. And his answer can be, we should probably kill him. No nation can rescue us from that. No world leader will lead us from that state. The hope of the nations is Christ alone. <clears throat> As we read this morning, I'll be reading from verses, <clears throat> excuse me, 33 through 46. 
Yeah, you read that right. I'm covering that many verses. It's not happening. It is, I promise. I'll read from the entirety of the verses. After the reading, I ask that you, that we, the congregation, pray silently, confessing our sins, asking God, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate our minds with the truth of his word. And after that, I'll pray corporately for us, and we'll enter into the time of the word. Reading now from Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, we, the assembly of, of God, are gathered here on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Redeemer, second person of the Trinity. Lord, we come in celebration of His great work in light of our sinfulness, in light of our continued rebellion Lord, I pray through the working of the Spirit that we continue to see ourselves at war with our own sin nature. 
that we continue to see ourselves strengthened by the Spirit and the Word and the fellowship of the saints. As we are transformed inwardly more and more in Christ-likeness. Lord, shape and turn our affections of our hearts away from dead things and idols. Self-centered pursuits and rather focused on you, Lord. And God, I pray that as we continue now in our time of worship, we're amazed to hear the reading of of your Decalogue this morning of the Ten Commandments. And we're confronted with your holiness and we rejoice in your holiness, but in part we lament over our inability to do it. And that's where we're to be reminded of the gospel of Christ who fulfilled that on our part and now strengthens us even in our brokenness, regenerate by the Spirit to pursue you in holiness. God, strengthen your people as we look to your word. Illuminate our minds to its truth for more transformation to Christ-likeness. Strengthen us as we, kingdom citizens, but are citizens as well still until you call us home or you return in this fallen kingdom. Strengthen us in the midst as we go out from today in a fallen world that we might shine your light. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. This is an interesting parable or or story that Jesus is using as an allegory that that some of them, when you read, you're like, okay, what, what, I I don't know if I've figured that out. And then the disciples will say that. Well, this one, you see, even his opponents at the end have kind of figured this one out. And so it makes it unique in the simplicity of how it's laid out. He's still, if you're wondering who his audience is, He's still talking back in 2123 is when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And those are the ones he's primarily addressing, although there's a crowd, there's his disciples and all these things. And so here he's telling them after the parable of the two sons, after his authority has been challenged, after he's, you know, withered the fig tree and he's already calling judgment on this unbelieving Israel. Now he's going to use this story of a vineyard, an owner of the vineyard, tenants who basically rent to stay in that vineyard and then his other servants who he goes to collect the rent from those people who live on his vineyard and then how that plays out and so I want you to know with clarity what each of these represent the owner of the vineyard is God and the vineyard with which he owns is represented at this point the not just the land of Israel, but the charge of Israel to be a light to the nations. The, the giving of the law and the prophets to Israel so that like the nations would come to them. And, and so this was everything that kind of enveloped not just who they were by ethnicity, but the reality of the charge they had from God himself, going all the way back to 
Deuteronomy 4, if you will, where there's a long description in Deuteronomy 4 of all the reasons Israel was chosen and what they were to do and all these things. And so in that vineyard, then, you have now these tenants. And so how this would work in the ancient Near East, you would have what would be a landowner, and they would have something like a vineyard. And they would go away, and and they lived somewhere else, but they would have plots of land and places to live, and they would rent, and they would come into a rental agreement. And then they would have their other servants, people who were more in their household, wherever their main place that they stayed were, it was, and then they would send them to collect rent, and then the rent would come back and that kind of thing. And so this was kind of a well-known thing in how it worked in this time. And then now you have his servants, and the servants who he sends are the prophets. So you have God the Father, Israel as a people, and the charge and everything that enveloped who they were as the seed of Abraham, and then you also have the prophets who are going to be God's servants, who are seen as, if, if, you, if you need a, a bigger picture of this, imagine the picture of you that know the story, of, remember the story of David when he commits murder and adultery. Now there was no higher authority than the king, and yet... The prophet of God in the Old Testament is recognized when he's given the word of God to give to the king. Now that authority structure has shifted. And that prophet can go to the king whenever he wants. If God says, go to the king right here, and that's what the prophets do. So the prophets are seen as outside of the political structure of Israel. And so when Nathan goes to David and tells him a story about this man that had all these sheep. And there was this other man who had one sheep, and he adored the sheep, and he loved the sheep, and then that man with all the sheep stole that man's sheep and killed him. What do you do with a man? Well, David probably wished he hadn't answered the question. Because then Nathan tells him, you are that man, and this is the judgment God will pronounce on you. And David repents. I use that because it's a rare situation in the Old Testament. Not the prophet going to the king and rebuking him, but the king actually repenting. That's the rarity. The norm was imprisonment, beating, and death. And this is kind of where we go along in this story. So here another parable, he says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. You can take much there, and this is a thing that you could take a lot of little pieces and talk about, the detail with which the master of the house took care to plant the vineyard, put a fence around it. It's this, this beautiful picture of all the things that God had done for Israel. And when the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Oh, by the way, the most often way that you paid rent when you rented or leased out land like this was to work the vineyard. And so when his servants come... They're looking for the fruit or the produce of the vineyard. And you probably see similarities to some of the other parables. Here they are living on the land. The fruit's going around them. The only thing they have to do to stay there is essentially work the land, work the fruit, 
and bring fruit so that when the master sends his servants, there's fruit that they can show that they have harvested during the time of the harvest. Rather than that, it says that when his servants go, and the agreement, of course, within the law, the agreement was that Israel was to be a light to the nations, a shining hill. All of these aspects of of fulfilling and following the law and looking different from the nations around them. This was an expectation of God's people. And yet, what do you find when the prophets are sent? Jesus uses this parable to say they've come to do and collect that, which was, which was normative. If you live in a vineyard, and that is your lease agreement, is that you are going to give the fruit when the servants come to gather the fruit to bring back to the master, you see all the imagery, right? You see how fruit is used throughout, particularly the New Testament, as a show of doing God's work and showing that fruit. We often say it to each other, don't, or, or when we're talking to each other, you particularly hear this language when one Christian questions whether another professed Christian is actually a, a Christian. Don't you know, hear that all the time? I'm not seeing much fruit. Show me the fruit. Instead of show me the money, show me the fruit. It's often this kind of language that we tacitly agree that there's clear meaning that this has to do with good works. This has to do with works that if a people is called God's people, then their work should look different than the people around them who are not God's people. Israel in the Old Testament, for those of you that are coming on Wednesday night, we're covering some very unfun at times stuff to read we're going through like Joshua and then we're going to be in Judges and all these things and what you see often are these tiny 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 minuscule periods of time where where things sync up where you have a people of God who's doing what God has asked them to do and all these beautiful things happen and then like seven years later everyone forgets and that's why I invite you not for for time's sake but I invite you predominantly to go read Deuteronomy 4 some point today or this week if you remember. It's central to the understanding of Israel's calling as Moses is summarizing it to this nation that will actually at some point is going to go into the land. And it's interesting the phrase of how often God through Moses says, lest you forget. Lest you forget forget do this lest you forget and that's the history of God's people forgetting his work so here's a people that we've established has God's law they have God the history of God's people the patriarchs the promises they're looking for Messiah yet their history is abject unbelief and rebellion And then when God sends his prophets to call them to repentance, by and large, the reaction that Jesus is summarizing here is to kill his servants. In 35, they took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. This was the response to Israel generally when it came to the prophets coming to tell them to repent. And it says 36, again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. And we don't have to look any further Then what happened to John the Baptist? 
John the Baptist was a prophet. And he called them to repentance and people were coming out to be baptized. And he's telling them, here is one who is coming who I can't even clean his feet. It was, it was the reality that I'm not even worthy to be in the same area. I'm not worthy to even do the most menial task. That's how much higher and other than he is from me. And if the people recognize John as Messiah... And they even were calling him the forerunner, which was the prophecy of the one who would come to announce Messiah to the people. And yet their reaction in a very callous, awful way is he's murdered. For what? Calling a king to repentance. That's the madness and the abject rebellion of faithlessness. This was the history. And so, the story that Jesus is setting up, you have the crowds, you have his disciples, you have the, the opponents, and they're listening to this story, and he's clearly talking about Israel, and these are the prophets, and this, these, there's everything, and then this is the line, this is the chunk of the section that is most important. He sent his prophets... They're beaten and killed and sent away. And it says in 37, finally he sent his son to them, saying, take note of this, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Jesus now, in allegory, is going to describe what's going to happen to the Son. And as he describes it, there'll be essentially four days' time where all of these events actually happen. But look at the mind of the people that Jesus is describing. These are the tenants who have agreed to a lease. These are the people who have agreed we are God's people and we live under his rule and our whole life is to produce fruit that portrays that relationship with God. And yet they sin. And so God sends his prophets to correct them and they kill them. And now at this momentous time in history, the second person of the Trinity comes down in humiliation in the form of man and lets them know the new kingdom has arrived. And he's choosing people, your mind, your mind, your mind. And he's telling everyone and calling them to account, this is the kingdom. And it doesn't look like any earthly kingdom. It's all about God's glory. It's not for your gain. It's not the things that humanity says are great. It's what God says is great. And so here he sends the son. And the son having more authority than a servant. Messiah 
being so much greater than the prophets and the reaction of God's people isn't, oh, we better, this is the sun. It actually increases their hatred. It increases the violence and it increases their desire to get him away from their face and their presence. Look at the way that it's written. When he writes about the servants coming, it's just, they killed some, they, they stoned some, and, and, and this. And then the son, there's a whole dialogue with the inner working of man. Here's the heir. If we kill him, we'll get the inheritance. Do you have any question about the madness residing in humanity? Do you have any question about sin's nature? If you do, I beg you to do a better reckoning with your own heart and mind. If you need any reminder of sin's madness... Take the believing man and woman and look to the self-centered nature about how you think. Don't ask other people. Don't compare yourself to other people. Be honest with your own thoughts. Be honest with your own desires and look at them matched up to what God calls you to. And you will go, thank you, God. I don't know why, but you saved me. I don't know why, but of your own good pleasure, you redeemed me and I'm, I'm, I'm yours. If not for that, this same madness would still be continuing in my life. But we still have to contend with it. But it doesn't look, this is, this is the type of thing where you have to look at it and go, sin is madness. The creature rebelling, the changing sinful creature rebelling against unchanging perfect and holy creator and that creator being the only one who could bridge that gap through the blood of the son and so here that son stands before a people and he prophesies through allegory letting them know not only is this how you're going to treat me it's going to happen exactly this way Jesus is telling the people through the story, and you have to wonder, all of these crowds, all of these opponents, they're going to be the ones shouting, crucify him. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. We know the story of the crucifixion. It happens outside of the city walls, outside of the vineyard. And he's killed as a criminal on a criminal's hill, hung on a tree cursed by God next to criminals. And the author of life will answer the request of one of those criminals about paradise. The reason I brought up the political 
culture right now in the West is for something exactly like that. Jesus is hanging on a cross with Roman centurions around him and Romans who beat him and a proconsul who condemned him. And when the thief asks, what's going to happen to me? He doesn't say, I don't know, blame the Romans. We should have, we should have you know, elected the other party. We wouldn't be hanging here. No, we'll be in paradise because paradise my kingdom is the only kingdom that matters and God's people should be concerned about that kingdom and I fear for some of you if I asked you how much news whoa <clears throat> I would say that was embarrassing but because it was. How much news did you scroll today or listen to? How much politics did you think about, talk about, consume yourself with? And I'd be willing to bet if you're honest with yourself and you put the number of hours on there and you, you put the number of minutes, perhaps, that you've prayed or read the word or fellowshiped with the saints just like my voice cracking at 48, you too would be embarrassed. I dare say if you spend as much time in the word as you did in keeping up with politics, you would be seminary professors. Woe to us when we begin to believe that the nations of this world have any hope for us. Woe to us if we teach our children that. Woe to us if we forget that this Christ, our Messiah, died for a kingdom that will not end. And your citizenship is already guaranteed. Worried about the culture you live in? Share the gospel with your unbelieving neighbor. Worried about where we're going? Share the gospel with your unbelieving coworker. Worried about the way things are, the vileness, the violence. Share the gospel with your enemy. Because that is going to potentially improve any nation far more than doom scrolling. I just learned that phrase and I've always wanted to use it. says, what will we do, the owner, when he comes and finds what they've done to his, his son? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This is Paul's argument from Acts when he goes, no longer am I going to spend my time here I'm going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And it wasn't because Paul suddenly hated his own people. Driven by the Holy Spirit, that was the moment that the gospel was now powered by the Holy Spirit. It was going to go to the Gentile nations. And the Gentile nations seemingly, when you're reading Acts, explode in belief in comparison to the Jews. 
so much so that when you're reading all of the Pauline epistles, there's almost always a case where he's taking up an offering to bring back to the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because it was almost singularly in the early church, the only church that was consistently being persecuted by unbelieving Jews. But the gospel is going to the nations and the nations are coming to faith in great works and fruit is being produced. Namely, that they're going out sharing the gospel. People are coming to faith. Churches are growing. Leaders are being trained and established and all these things and they're sending out people to farthest nations. Did you know that by the end of the first century, what we have historically is that there were missionaries as far as India That was how fast fruit became produced. That's what Jesus is talking about. I'm going to take it away from you, this nation of unbelief, and I'm going to give it to these other nations. And Paul says, it's this jealousy that will be stirred at some point. God is going to turn his face back to Israel, and their hearts will no longer be stoned. And so the reality is that it's all Christ, though. It's all the church And here, he's calling judgment on this generation. And then he gives one of his best ones. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. He asked them a sarcastic, if you will, and biting question. Religious leaders, you who teach the people, have you not read the scriptures? Now, the irony is, this is Psalm 118, 22 and 23. This was the psalm that was appointed to fathers to sing to their children, and that for families would memorize Psalm 118, what we call Psalm 118, was memorized in every Jewish household. These lines were well known. And so when he says, don't you know the scriptures? And then he repeats one of the most well-known scriptures of every Jewish household at the time. And he lets them know, but you don't actually know it. You haven't memorized, but you don't know it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the way that that imagery is supposed to lead to us is like, we have builders or people who work for builders or people who are just generally good at building stuff in the congregation. And the way that the stonemasons would work is they would look for the perfect stone with which to build the foundation on the corner. And so they would have to sift through all these stones and they would throw out the ones that were no good for that purpose of the cornerstone. And so the picture is they're actually finding the perfect stone, the stone like no cornerstone that's ever been found, like that's going to make the greatest foundation of any temple building whatsoever. And they're like, that one's perfect. Let's throw it out. Madness. Therefore, I tell you, 43, the kingdom of God, by the way, his kingdom, will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And to the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This imagery of this cornerstone and this kingdom is as follows. The Most High God sends His Son, Jesus, also equally God, to be humiliated for the purpose of being the perfect 
and true Passover sacrifice for sin of God's people. And God's people will be all people, Jews and Gentiles. And it's a specific number that, according to Ephesians, was chosen before the creation of the world. And then that number of people are the ones who will come to Christ. And it's the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. It's his kingdom that, not, that will be established and is being is in its, in its nascent forms here and now in this, this, this narrative. But when he ascends back to heaven and sends the spirit and the church is being founded, that cornerstone, who is Christ, is unassailable. And anyone who would put themselves against him, the imagery is, will be crushed, will smash themselves against him. And they will be crushed underneath. It means any opponent of Christ's has in store for them this judgment. And again, I call you to the concern you might have. Due to what your eyes see and your ears hear and the concern you bear for the future of your children, for the Western world and all of these things, I'm telling you now, invest your thoughts in your mind and your time in studying and praying about God's kingdom, being equipped for his work. Spend just as much time as you do studying the most proper uh, uh, bug out bag and, and, and secondary water source and where you're going to store all of your extra ammunition. You're going to need another house. Rather than all that, and I'm not condemning anyone for anyone being prepared. What I'm saying is that I see an absolute discrepancy in the lives of God's people who call themselves Christian in the West with a preoccupation on politics rather than everything being Christ-centered thinking. Continue to engage someone on a political discourse, but your answer should always be Christ. Acknowledge all of the evil in the world and recognize that the only answer is Christ. Know for a fact that no kingdom has existed in the history of humanity that you could call righteous. Except one. God's kingdom. As it stands now, Christ's church. Where we are clothed in God's righteousness. And we're a people enamored by the grace of God. The cornerstone, the foundation, the kingdom of God, Christ himself, he has given himself to us. And through him, now you live with one great war before you. And it is yourself. Mastering the sin nature in your own life should be your life's pursuit and that which you equip yourself with for the most because it is the fight that never ends until God returns or calls you home and praise be to him 
by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can live in victory over your sin. The blessed hope of the Christian church and of all of humanity is Christ our Redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. God, let us be reminded of our great need of your word. The great gift of of God, the Holy Spirit, who opens our heart and our minds to the truth of the word. Lord, we find ourselves... so many times fleeing from the word. Strengthen your church through the power of the spirit and the word. Strengthen your church to minister to one another, to lift each other up, to admonish each other, to encourage, to confront all these aspects of of being prepared in a holy people Let us be a people who are seeking your face in all of life. And let us be reminded in our failure, your triumph is that much greater. Lord, as we continue in this time of worship, now in a time of the Lord's Supper, may you continue to bless your assembly, and your name be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.